Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 59, Dora Klein, Examples and Exceptions in the Federal Rules of Evidence. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Dory Klein. Dory is professor of law at St. Mary's University School of Law, where her teaching and scholarship are in the areas of evidence, criminal law, and mental health law. Our podcast today features Dory's new article, Exemplary and Exceptional Confusion Under the Federal Rules of Evidence, which was published in the Hofstra Law Review. In it, Dory examines a structural aspect of the Federal Rules of Evidence that sows a surprising amount of confusion, both in practice and in the classroom. The text of many evidentiary rules, such as the Specialized Relevance Rules, the Propensity Rule, and the Authentication Rule, includes examples. A subsequent remedial measure is inadmissible to prove negligence or other wrongful conduct, but admissible for another purpose, such as, and here are the examples, ownership, control, or feasibility. Students, as well as sometimes practitioners and even courts, will on occasion treat these examples as if they were true exceptions. In other words, If evidence fits into one of the categories provided, it's admissible, and if not, then it's inadmissible. But that's patently wrong. It's not how the rule is structured. The examples are just that, examples, not actual exceptions. Dory looks into the confusion surrounding examples and exceptions and offers some proposals for reform. Dory, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Ah, thank you. To begin, can you take a minute to introduce the problem that you identify in your article? What exactly do you mean when you say that the examples in the Federal Rules of Evidence are misunderstood to be exceptions? So this is a problem that I gradually became aware of as I was teaching these rules and What I noticed was that my students seemed to be very attracted to the idea of exceptions, that exceptions made sense to them and they were going to skip over the hard, complicated substance of the rule and just get to the exceptions. And we struggled with this some in class with the idea that these examples were not exceptions and they wanted to find some special meaning in the fact that there were specifically listed examples in these rules, and they weren't really very happy with my suggestion, trying to lead them to the conclusion that these examples are just examples, and there are all sorts of other things that the rule allows that aren't specifically listed. And so based on my experiences in class, I decided to start researching these rules. What I expected to find was a lot of judges writing things like what I just said, that examples are just examples and the universe of permitted purposes is endless. And instead, what I found was 
was just writing what my students were saying, which is that these examples had some special meaning and that they were exceptions and they were enumerated exceptions. And I was actually pretty alarmed at that point because I don't think the rule works that way. Let me try to be a little more concrete. Give us a couple of examples in the rules just to get us up to speed as to when the rules actually give examples, but those examples are sometimes treated as actual exceptions. Oh, so 408 is the one that I think is now most problematic because 408, of course, prohibits the use of evidence that's obtained during settlement negotiations because we don't we want to encourage people to engage in settlement negotiations. We don't want things that are said during settlement negotiations to be offered against parties, but only if they are offered to prove liability. And so there are many instances where evidence that's obtained during settlement negotiations would be admissible. And the rules used to call this permitted uses. And the rules specifically said, and still says, that the court can admit evidence for purposes not prohibited. For example, proving bias, prejudice, negating contentions of undue delay, efforts to obstruct criminal investigation. So those are specifically listed examples of what used to be called under the rule permitted uses. But now these permitted uses somehow got restyled as exceptions. But even before, right, we could, could this is a mistake of the restylers that's baffling to me, but, but I don't want to blame the whole problem on the restylers because this problem of readers, lawyers, judges, students, interpreting these examples to be exceptions it happened long before 2011, but, but now they are specifically called under the rules. They're called exceptions. They're not exceptions. They never were exceptions. They're still examples. And so to me, this is an easy fix problem. It just get rid of the examples and then we won't be tempted to call them exceptions. Now, the problem is, of course, not just 408, right? There are many rules where you have these yes. examples. The other specialized relevance rules, like 407, you can introduce the specialized remedial measure. You can't introduce it to prove negligence, but you can use it for ownership and control and those sorts of things. And actually, my research found that all of these examples cause problems. All of these examples are, to some extent, referred to by judges on a somewhat regular basis, more than just a aberration. All of these examples get called exceptions. And so my thinking is we don't need them. I think historically, when we think about when the federal rules of evidence were proposed and there was this campaign to get them adopted, that perhaps it helped people be in favor of the rules of evidence, that these common purposes, purposes for which this evidence had in the past commonly been admitted, were now recognized as still being permitted. And so maybe it was the initial rule writers nod to people that were worried that the rules were going to change what was now admissible. But I think that if that was, in fact, some motivation for including these examples, I think that purpose is long gone, that no one is any more concerned about whether the rules of evidence today admit the same kind of evidence that was admissible in 1965 or whenever. And I think that instead what happens is there's this attraction to the idea of an exception. So we have a rule, we have an exception. And that just, uh, we're somehow predisposed or primed to think about examples as exceptions. 
Let me back up a little bit to your earlier point, which was that at first you thought, well, students make this error. Our job as teachers is to figure out why they're making the error and to explain to them, no, this is not actually an exception. This is just an example. Right. The thing that I was struck by in your article is that you show that courts actually make this mistake as well. Yes. Do you have a sense of how widespread these errors are? So, for example, are these, for lack of a better term, are these examples that you give in the paper, are they special? Are they sort of unique cases in which this has occurred? Or do you think this is only the tip of the iceberg, that actually you see this all the time. And, and I think the reason why I ask this is that most evidentiary rulings, of course, are not memorialized in an opinion. So if you see a bunch of stuff in the published case law, most likely there's other stuff going on that we don't see. Right. And I did not do an exhaustive search of every case that cited the rule and then figure out what percentage. I, I have thought now that that would be interesting to maybe do. At the time I wrote the paper, I was just alarmed that I was finding multiple examples. So I would say they're not aberrations, but they're not commonplace. I wouldn't say most judges. I'd say it's still a minority of court opinions that would make this mistake, but but enough to me that it was still alarming that we would have federal judges that would be writing things like there has to be a plan exception or an intent exception. And, and I will say that that under 404B, it's, it is commonplace. And in fact, it could just be that 404B is an exceptionally popular rule. Popular might not be the right word. 404B is the subject, I, I think I've read in a couple places, of the rule that's most often cited in federal appellate court opinions. And just the sheer volume of cases ends up with a lot of judges falling back on things like plan exception, intent exception. And that, I would say, is widespread. And that has led to what I've discovered after I wrote this piece is that courts are taking a really hard look at 404B and saying this is not exceptions. And, and so even the courts have recognized that under 404B, we've gone too far, that the way that we are applying, I think the D.C. Circuit and the Seventh Circuit specifically have said that over the years, we've developed these rules for applying 404B that are very now far removed from 404B, and we're going to change our approach. But with the other ones, the specialized relevance rules, I wouldn't say that it's a huge problem in that many courts are making this mistake and it's causing all sorts of evidence to be wrongly admitted or excluded. But on the other hand, I will say that given that the fix to me seems so easy, we don't need these examples. There's nothing in my mind, to be gained from having these examples in the rules weighed against sort of doing a balancing test here. Right? The, the cost of getting rid of this is nothing, and the benefit is something. Even if it's a minority of courts that are making this mistake, it's a mistake. Now, let me play a little bit of devil's advocate here. Is it really true that they're not giving us anything? Obviously, they do provide some information. They make quite clear that the rule does not cover a bunch of these other purposes. Yes, those are examples, but sure. those are commonly used examples, and so that's a possibility. And the other thing is, is deleting the examples going to fix the problem? I mean, why should we delete the examples as opposed to spreading the word 
that, hey, look, these are actually examples and you should be more careful about it. You know, that's a possibility. I'm just not sure how we would do that. And there's a middle ground, which is we can take them out of the rules, but put them in a advisory committee note. So you would save them right? for people who want to get more insight into the rule. We could make it, give them examples of ways that the evidence might still be admissible for some other purpose. But I just think that my experience with my students and also reading all of these cases where judges are making the same mistake, there's just something about enumeration. Enumerated things are especially important. And, and the fact that we have these particular words that appear in the rules. Right? And so 404B is, I think, the worst case of this because there's such a long list, motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan. And so often judges focus on those words and say plan exception and intent exception. And there's just some natural attraction, I think, to the idea, not just of exceptions, but also to enumeration. So maybe we can do a middle ground and say something like, there are other permitted purposes. All non-prohibited purposes remain permitted and, and take out the specific examples because I think those specific words come to have too much meaning because they're in the rules, because this word, right, motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, those, those things sound like they have some special significance because those words and not some other words are in the rule. Here's the really interesting thing about your discussion. So I totally buy this idea that enumeration is attractive. When you list things, people try to memorize those things. But there is something a little paradoxical about the proposal, because let's suppose the advisory committee adopts your revision. What we basically expect people to do is read the text of the rule carefully and notice that the examples are no longer there, and therefore they will not use those examples as exceptions. But we got to this point in the first place because people are not reading the text carefully, because if you read the text carefully, you would realize that it's not actually an exception, right? <laughs> right. So, so how are we going to change practice? Do you think that the enumeration matters that much that simply removing these examples will prevent this from happening? Or is it in fact that people are using some kind of shorthand and that's actually the real problem that people are just saying, okay, well, that sounds like plan or identity. And so, yeah, there's an exception for that and that's going to be admissible. Sure. I think that's possible. I mean, it could turn out if we did this, that people do want shortcuts to these rules. And on the other hand, we have other rules that don't have examples. Right? So 409, not and especially often use rule, but, but 409 has the same structure as 408 and 404. And it manages to communicate its content by just simply stating the prohibited purpose without offering a long litany of specific reasons why that evidence might be permitted because it doesn't fall under the prohibited purpose. So I don't know. It's, it's possible that if we did get rid of these specific enumerated examples that get misconstrued as exceptions, that people would either ignore that or they would create their own kind of, of shortcut. But, but I do think that it would at least be an attempt to solve the problem. I, I think at this point, it was 
truly shocking to me when I started researching these rules. And like I said, I expected judges to say what I was trying to get my students to say, which is that these examples have no special meaning, that they're not exceptions. Instead, what I found was judges saying just the total opposite. And in my mind, you need to do something about that. It's just not correct. Let me offer one possible extension for you to consider. Your paper doesn't really focus on authentication as an example. And it seems to me that students, at least in my experience, have a tendency of focusing on the 901 examples as, again, mm. the only permissible methods of authenticating, say, handwriting or whatever that happens to be, rather than, again, recognizing those as examples. Does 901 qualify for your critique as well, or is there something different that I'm missing? You know, that's a good question. I have not noticed. I think maybe the scope of evidence that because authentication applies to all evidence. Right? And and so far, we've been talking about a smaller universe of evidence, right? Character evidence or remedial measures evidence or settlement negotiation evidence. I think authentication, because it applies to everything that could be offered in evidence, I have found my students less attracted to the examples in part because the examples are explained, perhaps. So the rules don't just give a list of right plan, motive, intent, opportunity, but instead explain each example because each example applies only to a specific type of evidence, right? Like handwriting or telephone conversations or voice recognition. So I think that makes it less likely that, although I see your point, I, and, and I will have to think about whether the same sort of logic might apply, but it just seems more obvious from the way the examples are presented in 901 that, of course, when we talk about telephone conversations, we aren't talking about handwriting. We're talking about handwriting. We're not talking about telephone conversations, but, but it's possible. I'll have to consider that. Final question for you. What's next for you? Are you planning any additional research in this space before our interview, you talked a bit about all the work you've done in mental health law. What's what's on the uh, horizon for you? Well, you know, after this piece that we're, that we're talking about, the one that talks about the specialized relevance rules and 404, I actually went and, and wrote another article specifically about 404B and about the Seventh Circuit approach to 404B because it's broader. The problems with 404B are broader than just misinterpreting examples as exceptions. So I sort of got caught up in that question. And so I've looked at that, but my current uh, work in progress is actually about the insanity defense. No questions of evidence that I have encountered yet in this piece. So it's insanity defense from a criminal law perspective as opposed to an evidentiary perspective. Exactly. And really what the insanity defense and fear of faking and why that seems to be the first thing that people think about with the insanity defense, but not with any other kind of criminal defense. Although people can fake pretty much any kind of defense, it seems to bother people more if someone fakes an insanity defense. So all kinds of public surveys find that people dislike and distrust the insanity defense because it's perceived as easy to fake but I'm not especially sure. My argument is it's not really easier to fake than any other defense. In fact, it's kind of hard to fake 
and someone who can persuasively pretend to be insane is, is actually, uh, it's not that easy. Not as easy as you might think. Well, Dory, thanks for taking the time to talk about what is apparently a common but unaddressed problem with regard to the rules of evidence. Great having you on the show. Uh, great. Thank you. At first glance, the problem identified by Dory is relatively straightforward. People, including some courts, misinterpret the meaning of the examples provided in the federal rules. What should be mere illustrations of a rule, with no operative effect, morph into exceptions, operative categories that determine whether evidence is admissible or inadmissible. And arguably, the solution should then be similarly straightforward. To get rid of the confusion, remove the offending language. Since they're merely examples, just delete them. But the examples exceptions problem, I think, belies much deeper questions about statutory construction. First, why do courts, sophisticated and experienced legal actors, make this mistake? Surely it's not because of pure inadvertence, because counsel should point out such obvious errors. Dory points to the potential psychological power of enumeration. Lists yearn to be memorized, and memorized lists perhaps demand more influence than as mere examples. I suspect that some of the blame also rests with mental shortcuts. Evidence, as we all know, can be complicated. Yet most evidentiary rulings are done orally and on the fly. That means that we might have to rely on shortcuts to remember the rules and apply them. But shortcuts are only right most of the time, and they lack precision and nuance. And this is exactly what's going on here. The examples being used as exceptions are effectively a shortcut, and of course lack the requisite precision. Second, what's the best way to address instances in which practice diverges from statutory text. As I raised in the interview, the problem we have here is something like careless reading of the rules. But if that's true, there's something odd about amending the text of the rules, because if the actors hewed closely to the text in the first place, we wouldn't have this problem at all. Perhaps, the revision is necessary to draw attention to the problem, but then we need subsequent educational efforts to complete the change. Maybe Dory is right. Maybe we should just delete these silly examples from Rule 404B and the Specialized Relevance Rules. Maybe we should even delete the authentication examples. Or perhaps all we need is better education. The evidence professors out there just need to pound these points harder. Having read Dory's article, I'll be doing precisely that this semester. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza and Megan Cole. 
And music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. <laughs>